0: My kids, like I'll, we'll be at the playground and they'll, they'll jump off like a five foot, you know, playground equipment apparatus, whatever. And they'll land in a full squat with their knees touching and then pop out of it into a full run. And they, and again, kids are more elastic. Like I know that, but it also just, just goes to show you, like we move this way. Like we wouldn't have ball and socket joints if we weren't supposed to facilitate rotation. Like let the, let the structure of the actual joints tell you what they're supposed to do. And I think when we try to change that or we try to force things, you know, like force the knees out and only out, it's just, it turns into kind of that like square peg round hole type thing where, yeah, you can potentially do that, but you're, you're limiting your actual potential quite a bit from an athletic perspective, probably.
1: That was coaching consultant, Kyle Dobbs. Having kids, I really resonated with that little intro that you just heard. My son gets up when he he's two. And when he, Gets up from sitting, he literally internally rotates his femur so much that his feet, his shins point out to the side, almost like a T. <laughs> and then he he leans forward and he can get up. He's insanely mobile; like it's crazy to watch. But it's as if when we when we train athletes and when we devise ways to coach barbell lifts and, and create these manufactured exercise constructs, it's like we we act as if we never watched a child play in the playground. And when we really look at human movement, I think it's really easy to see that there can really be a disconnect with things that we're we're coaching and doing in a gym setting and things that happen on the field of play elastically and with power. And so, uh, you know me, I, I think that it's good to be strong, but we have to be smart about how we're using these these powerful tools that we have at our disposal. Kyle Dobbs is just an awesome guy to talk to. I learned so much this conversation. Uh, he, you may know him through his Instagram account and his uh, company, Compound Performance. He's continually breaking down uh, complex biomechanical concepts into easy to use movements in the gym setting that can really restore the way that we move and give us more power and elasticity. Compound Performance, Kyle's company, offers online training, facility consulting, and mentorship for personal trainers and coaches. Kyle himself has trained over 15,000 sessions and has uh, experienced substantial success in the coaching realm. And if you just spend a few minutes reading any of Kyle's posts, you know that he has so much uh, intelligence when it comes to all things movement, biomechanics, and just putting together a smart training program and and really critically thinking about why we're doing what we're doing. And so for this show, I really wanted to get into, and we've, we've gone over this topic before in various ways. But just really get into the nuts and bolts of squatting and how it plays into and impacts our ability to do things like internally rotate our femur and get to the inside edge of our foot and be able to push elastically off the ground. And certain things that are often done in the weight room that really interfere with that, what specific part of the squat interferes with that, and how we can load athletes just more intelligently. Kyle's also going to get into ways to in- restore internal rotation for those athletes who may have lost it. And we're going to start out talking just a lot about his return to run training and breathing mechanics. So it's a great piggyback off the last show with Leo Ryan. This was a fun show. I learned so much, not just talking to Kyle, but there's a ton of show notes in this show. Uh, go to the website, justsports.com. I, I wrote uh, like a mini book on all these things that I took from Kyle. And so. If you work with athletes and weights in any context, this is absolutely a must listen. And uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. Let's get on the show with Kyle. Kyle, you were mentioning before a little bit that, and we I think we can both resonate with this, is that we entered, uh, or what did you say? We, we left college as worse athletes than we entered. And I I would say for me, that was more probably in my later twenties when I started doing all the, you know, the lifts as per technical specs and squatting knees out and through, through the heels and stuff. But I resonate with that man. So tell me a little bit more about that idea of you leaving college as a worse athlete than you entered coming out of high school.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think a few different things happened. You know, I was a young athlete who just played sports all day. You know, I grew up in the Midwest and did a lot of manual labor and kind of got strong, you know, swinging, you know, axes and pickaxes, and, you know, shoveling and doing, you know, hauling hay and doing things like that. And then just playing my sport and being probably more of a lighter weight, elastic based athlete. Like I went into college as a like six, 485 pound runner slash basketball player and graduated at 220 pounds with a, you know, a much better squat and deadlift, but a lower vertical and as a slower athlete you know from the from that standpoint and and with a lot more just wear and tear on my body I had some injuries throughout that process too and spent more time in a training room than I ever really did on a court or a track which is unfortunate but I think that's the story of a lot of strength coaches and a lot of people that get into this industry is you know they kind of fall in love through the rehab and strength training process and coming back from that and as their athletic dreams kind of dissipate a little bit through that process to kind of go into to more of the strength and conditioning side or rehab side. Did you go into college thinking you wanted
1: to get into exercise and sport and all that or, or was, it, was it the injuries that got you there?
0: I was actually a pre-med major so I was um, a double major in biology chemistry with a minor in physical science and figured out kind of between my sophomore and junior years that I didn't want to go like the full med school route but I was really interested in just anatomy, physiology, and kind of the way the body works and, and just stayed with it, but never went farther. And that kind of decided I wanted to be more on the the physical preparation side of things later on through like my my junior and senior year as I was spending more time with the training staffs. And so there was definitely a transition there, uh, but I don't have like an exercise science degree. Like that was all stuff that I learned post-college.
1: Got it. And so so you're a runner. And, and one of the things I think this kind of blends with what I was originally asking is you've gotten into running and sprinting again after i think Mm -hmm. quite a hiatus and this is just what we're going to talk about a lot today is you uh, just tying things into the gait cycle and how we actually move as humans and and i'm I'm curious because i like like i had said like i in my mid-20s i actually did do pretty well athletically in college just because the lifts i I was able to do just kind of, I didn't know and coached me. I just did them how my body wanted to move. (laughs) And uh, later, you know, doing everything technically knees out, squatting through the heels, I started to see a lot of changes in like stride length and uh, and those types of things for the worse. And so I'm curious how, how has running gone after all the time doing more of the the lifting type work and and also in light of all the things that you've tied in regarding doing it functionally well and like a human being should move and operate?
0: Yeah, it's, I mean first off it's been really fun. You know I think that's that's probably the most important thing to me because that's it really kind of takes me back to my background. And as I was doing it I had to I had to get into it pretty slow like with some graded exposure and I definitely had to start working in a little bit, you know, different training but you know COVID kind of gave me uh the excuse to kind of get back into it as I wasn't able to get into the gym quite as much. That was kind of one of the only ways that I could really express power you know i i've got a couple kettlebells at home and and a few just odd assortment of you know modalities that i could be using and then obviously my body weight but i wasn't really able to establish or or exert force to the extent that i wanted to and sprinting kind of gave me that and it's definitely been a learning experience to kind of get back into it you know i'm somebody who for the last five or six years has done almost exclusively you know weight training and I did quite a bit of rowing before that, just indoor rowing. So like capacity has never been much of an issue for me, but just from a biomechanics standpoint, like a lot of the stuff I've been doing has been, you know, bilateral and, you know, quote unquote sagittal uh, from that perspective. So getting back into unilateral movement, getting back into reciprocal movements and trying to find femur IR and things of that nature from a gait perspective has been a challenge, but it's been fun just kind of exploring those corners again and getting back used to it. And so far, so good. I the Probably the biggest issue with me has just been, you know, I'm almost 225 pounds. And, you know, when I was running competitively, I was 185. So my feet I take, probably take the biggest wear and tear right now. So that's really where I've had to kind of get back into it a little slower, just from just a pure weight and impact perspective, kind of build that back up a little bit.
1: I'm sure when you were running back in the day, I'm sure there wasn't much you were thinking about, I maybe mean, a few cues your coaches gave you, right? Like, so 20 years or however much longer, you know, beyond that, what are things that go through your mind now, now that you know so much about, you know, biomechanics and anatomy, what, what goes through your mind with what you're trying to accomplish or what your body's doing as you're, you're running and moving?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I still, I try not to think too much when I'm actually running. I think more about respiration probably, uh, because I, just because my cardiovascular system is probably not where it should be right now. I tend to, to fall into like mouth breathing really early on in exertion and fatigue. So especially if I'm running like 400 repeats, it's pretty much mouth breathing after the first hundred. If I'm doing something longer, I can, you know, handle a nasal uh, breathing, you know, further from that perspective and kind of get a better respiration cycle. And, you know, for me, the biggest thing now is not falling into just like thoracic extension you know that's where i typically fault into and i usually get a lot of compression from that perspective and that's gonna for me kind of inhibit my actual respiration inhalation cycles which means i'm not also going to be able to expel co2 quite as efficiently as i might be able to on something highly aerobic the other side of things is just looking at like foot impact and and trying to make sure that i'm actually getting into pronation and, and getting into instep and pushing off big toe through kind of that late stance phase so You know, as someone who has been doing a lot of bilateral kind of more supinated base lifting, it's hard for me to get like inside edge without consciously thinking about it now. You know, so I I do drills right from a, a training perspective or from a coordination perspective to kind of drive that. But we all know that, you know, a drill is one thing. But when you're actually on a track running, uh, it's got to be different and and you need to be a little more reactive and a little more adaptive and, and try to get those things more on that kind of unconscious confidence spectrum and not have to think about it. But right now, I still I'm still conscious of it. We'll put it that way.
1: Yeah. I definitely agree with the not overthinking part of it. Cause it is, it is fun to, to notice. It's just, yeah. especially having gone through this long enough, you know, but when you really, it comes time to put it down and I like the breathing being the highest order. That's probably the easiest thing just to keep mm-hmm. uh, on the the fore, so to speak. I, so I do want to ask you about the, the, cause a big topic or a, a big area we're going to get into is the external and everything in lifting and bilateral lifting and, and, and how that fits with unilateral and, alternating reciprocating human movement but i'm curious you said um managing thoracic extension running i just did a podcast on breathing with leo ryan so i'm interested and uh so could you go into a little detail on that thoracic extension what how it works with running and what you're trying to accomplish there
0: yeah so you know when you're when you're going through respiration cycles right your rib cage is going to move it's going to compress and it's going to expand and through inhalation and exhalation. And that's going to lead to diaphragmic ascension and ascension and, you know, pressure management on down to the pelvic floor through the axial skeleton. And what I get when I'm too extended is I get a diaphragm that's basically eccentrically oriented and doesn't really have as much of an ability to ascend and descend. And I'm compressing my rib cage posteriorly through like those large lat muscles or trap muscles, right? It's squeezing everything back to push my rib cage forward So I'm in more of this inhalation based pattern, but just like when we talk about ranges of motion and other joints, right? If you're in full hip extension, you can't really extend farther, right? Like you've maxed that out, but you also lose the ability to kind of flex because you're on that continuum. You're so far to one end, you're skewed. So if I'm in that full extension based pattern and I've got kind of like this anterior tip of my actual rib cage, I'm also not able to really take good inhales from that perspective. So I'm end up shortening up my respiration cycle. I'm not getting the full inhale and full exhale that I might need to fully get oxygen into my system and then expel CO2 out of my system because those things, are going to work in tandem with one another. So you, you talk about, you know, aerobic athletes, if you're not getting oxygen into your system, that means you're probably not getting oxygen dispersed into muscle tissue as well. So that can affect lactate threshold. That can affect a lot of things down the chain just from a a muscular standpoint, from a performance standpoint. So for me, one of the big things that I'm looking for is keeping my shoulders loose and being able to move my scapulas on a Mm ribcage through protraction, retraction, as I'm going through flexion and extension cycles, upper body, and being able to kind of get a little bit more posterior expansion through that inhalation uh, of my ribcage to allow for like that kind of that neutral thoracic curve that we we should have right rather than a a big flat upper back that you see kind of in that extended pattern interesting because yeah i
1: was going to try to get into the details of what does it mean like what what it what presents when you're in thoracic extension because i think we're all familiar with lumbar extension anterior Mm -hmm. pelvic tilt but sometimes i get a little i i'll admit it i get a little confused we start working up the chain in the the thoracic and the cervical because to me the the big easy one is just what's the pelvis doing so what is that what does that presentation look like? And I also say, uh, my mind is just often in sprinting, where like, you look at your same bolt, you have some anterior tilt, you have the shoulders over the hips, you have the, the ribs are forward like a Darien bar, mm-hmm. sternum forward, xiphoid forward for a sprinting posture. Just explain a little bit more what that thoracic extension looks like in light of, be it sprinting or distance running, I'm sure. I'm just curious
0: uh, what that means. Yeah, so it's actually exactly what you're describing, where you've got a rib cage that's not necessarily over a pelvis, it's more over a forefoot. Right. So it's forward in space and and you are leading with the xiphoid and the sternum. And then because of that, you know, you've got a flatter upper back and then you've got more of a lumbar extension typically to go along with that. Because the essentially the the anonymates of the of the pelvis have to dip into an anterior tilt to accommodate that movement of the spine and. That's something you see again, presented in most power sports, right? Mm -hmm. We work with a lot of power lifters and you see that with power lifters as well. And you see that with sprinters. And that's a question I get a lot of the time. And and one of the biggest things that I always try to remind people with that is those are both highly anaerobic sports, right? Like respiration doesn't necessarily matter that much in a 100 or even a 200. It doesn't matter that much in a one RM squat or deadlift or bench press, So when you're in that position, you're basically looking at maximal muscular integration, right? Because you're now concentrically orientating the lats, right? Primarily from an upper body perspective, you're shortening them at the lumbar spine and you're shortening them at the thoracic and cervical spine through the lats and the traps. And you're able to now use them to propel yourself forward more powerfully. And when you prioritize muscular integration, you're almost always going to sacrifice respiration mechanics, like those two things are going to, you know, kind of fall on the opposite of the continuum typically. And when you maximize respiration mechanics, you're going to probably sacrifice maximal muscular recruitment and power. And that's okay. That's the reason why, again, we're not able to run a hundred pace for a mile, right? Part of it is you can't get air into your system. Part of it comes from fatigue based on that. So when I look at like a, a the posture that a hundred meter runner is gonna exhibit, it's going to be different than what a half marathon or a marathon runner is going to exhibit. Like those, those are two different tasks that are going to co- completely just require different postures and positions and respiration needs, you know, from that perspective. So yeah, like when, when I'm looking at a sprinter and then when I'm looking at like a distance runner, I'm just seeing the self-organization that's happening for two different tasks. And neither one of them is wrong, right? They're just, they're individuals that are completely trained for different outcomes uh, and different energy system development, different muscular development. So um, it, it's all purpose-driven, you know, when you look at it from that perspective. And some of the systems that I work within, you know, everything needs to be neutral, quote-unquote. And that works well for, like, Genpop. People, but when you look at the specificity of athletics, you have to understand that if I go to a powerlifting meet or if I go to a track meet and I see that all of these uncoached athletes have all self organized into the same or very similar kind of postural and positions and orientations, that that's probably beneficial for their sport. And me trying to change those things is probably going to decrease their actual performance. And I think that's something that we always have to consider is if you're not taking the actual task requirements into account before you start applying like, you know, quote unquote, corrective exercise or some of these other things, you're doing the athlete or the client a huge injustice when it comes to that perspective, because they probably care more about outcomes than they do like postural correction, especially in that moment.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I asked because I think yeah, it's an important like distinguishing point because and, and when I say running, you're talking about running like almost more like an endurance or at least 400 up, right? Like not Yeah. interesting. I like you, you had mentioned this on a previous podcast, how just what you said, like our bodies will form to the task. What well, If you're an mm-hmm. Olympic lifter, you're going to have a lot of anterior or you have a sprinter mm-hmm. or anything that like in, I've only been to three PRI clinics, but I remember they talked about like the go button. That's like the anterior tilted extension. Like mm-hmm. that's your go button. And that's what those athletes are going to be in a lot yeah. of. And so it makes me thinking almost like, you know, we talk about, how the, the effect of one thing has on the other. What, what effect does squatting have on running and jumping and what or what effect does distance running have on those things? And I, I kind of think too, yes, there's there's muscle characteristics and whatever, but I also think, well, based off what you're saying, and just in more podcasts, we talked about this in squatting and like what what's the infrasternal angle and pressure management. But I, I think if you did a lot of distance running in you're a sprinter, not only is it more slow twitch, but you might be falling into a posture potentially that is the breathing mechanics that are required that it's different the ego i can't speak for uh elite distance runners because i think i probably am not aware enough i haven't looked at enough their posture but i know when i watch the average like half marathon you don't see people with that chest forward posture at all you see them a little more hunched and the people who are super grinders are really hunched forward i mean to probably mm-hmm. the point where it's not good for them or it's not probably it is it is not good for them so i just think that yeah that balance is interesting
0: Yeah. When, when I look at like, um, like field sport athletes, right. That are, that are going to be more aerobically based with short spurts of sprints and jumps and whatever, like you got soccer players and basketball players and, um, hockey, even like hockey and football athletes. You're, you're going to see people like when you see people with that huge extended posture and they're just trying to get air in through their mouths as much as possible. Like that's somebody who's almost gassed out. Like if I'm the athlete standing across from them on a field, like I know this person's about done. Because that's that's basically the body's last ditch effort to get as much oxygen into the system as they possibly can, you know. So when I'm looking, like for me, even if I'm running 400 repeats, like like I did that this morning, um, I'm still running those at probably like 80, right? Because I'm actually trying to run those at like what a mile pace would be. So I'm not trying to you know break 50 necessarily on my 400s that I'm running for repeats. I'm trying to keep them all within like a 110. Because my goal is to run, you know, a a 445 mile, right? So I'm doing eight to 10 of those. And if I can maintain respiration mechanics and good inhalation and exhalation through that process, the longer that I can maintain aerobic capacity before I have to dip into anaerobic energy system usage, the better off I'm going to be in anything that's going to be aerobically driven. Like I don't want to get anaerobic fast or I'm not going to do well at whatever I'm trying to do, you know? And if I've got somebody, you know, and it, I mean, this filters into autonomics as well. Like, I don't want to be highly sympathetic. Like I don't need to take a bunch of stimulants before I go run repeats mm-hmm. and try to do something aerobic either. Cause I don't want an elevated heart rate. I don't want elevated blood pressure. I want those things to stay as low as possible for as long as possible. And to be able to maximize my performance within those zones over time. Like I want to keep those things pretty steady, but increase outputs within them. And that that's kind of the goal of like that tempo training or or even some of the longer runs that I might do. If I'm just a sprinter, right, running it, you know, 70, 80 percent might not be that beneficial for me because I might not need to build up a ton of aerobic development if my goal is 100 meter runs. Right. If I'm a power lifter, same thing. If I'm just trying to lift maximal load for one rep, you know, in three very specific positions, I can, again, induce a huge amount of specificity within my training protocols there. And I don't need a ton of variability and probably don't want a ton of movement variability because I want to create as much stability within the lift as I possibly can by creating essentially biomechanical constraints through positions and orientations of bones. So variability is not my friend. And like aerobic fitness outside of recovery purposes, probably is pretty useless for me in that from that perspective too
1: i wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor simplyfaster.com now has available in their store you hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the freelap timing system in the kbox which i have and use regularly but today i wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that SimplyFaster has which is the GymAware and the new portable flex unit So let me start with the gym wear. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox. As the readings you get out of the gym wear go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10" squatter versus a 511 point guard so you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units it's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as coach me plus team builder and athlete monitoring so new to the store is the flex which is the ultra portable and lower price travel version of the coach's favorite gymware. so just like the gymware, the flex measures the shape of each rep range of motion total work done eccentric dynamics So, for this and the Gym Aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So, you have here two awesome tools and if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think, uh, and I, I just love how this really piggybacks off the last podcast I did, because breathing is not something that I really, I think I've paid enough due to in the you know, 200 some episodes of this show. So it's I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. It gives me a lot of things, again, things to notice when I'm training, whether it's a, if I'm just doing a recovery trail run versus a, a sprinting and just kind of noticing what your body wants to do and why it's breathing a certain way. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the team sport athlete, the intermittent is the meeting in the middle of so many qualities too. And I think it is, I mean, I love training to get faster. It's a huge passion of mine, but I also love learning about what makes different athletes tick from a respiratory perspective. So you mentioned internal rotation of the femur and external rotation of the femur and squatting. Uh, I think this is a big topic that I, I really wanted to uh, approach with you today. And so in how you've trained over the years, tell me a little bit and how you, you train athletes and clients. Tell me a little bit about your evolution of of. The big lifts, the, the squat, the deadlifts, hex deadlifts, anything that involves that and how it fits with gait and running and, and re- reciprocal human movement.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, I think I always have to start with, you know, the, the questions I'm always going to ask whenever any athlete for any sport is in front of me is, you know, what what is their sport? What are the requirements of their sport? Like what physical qualities do they actually need? Are they running? Are they doing bilateral work? Uh, energy system development, whatever you know and and then I look at that person's actual individual abilities respective to those task requirements right and I look for the things they do really well and and then I look for the things that might be limiting their performance. and if I've got somebody who has you know good elasticity and, and good work capacity but they have a strength deficit, Right? That's where I might need some, some bilateral lifting just to give them a global stimulus and give them more you know, hypertrophy or tissue development right? and the, the ability to express power. If I've got somebody who is extremely strong bilaterally, but they're short on coordination, they're short on work capacity, and they have trouble just you know, running well, then I need to probably get into more unilateral-based work and start getting them balanced over one leg rather than over two. And because when we look at like what happens with a lot of our bilateral lifters, you've got a pelvis now sitting between two femurs rather than being over a femur. So the, the actual rotational requirements of the femur and the, ad, the, the requirements for adduction change significantly when you've got two points of contact on the ground rather than one. And what you're looking at is you've got everything kind of going for, in, into like more of an external rotation and abduction scenario where knees are going out rather than knees are going forward. But when we run, we have, we need forward translation of the knee, right? Like we need dorsiflexion. We need a forward shin angle. We need a knee that goes well over a toe, especially in late stance mechanics. Uh, You know, so those things, if I've got somebody who's squatting a ton, but they're not doing, but everything's kind of vertical shin and hips back and chest up kind of the old school squatting method, I'm not really teaching anything that's going to carry over that much to gait from a coordination-based pattern. I might be developing tissue and, and again, even maybe neuromuscular work. I might be getting hypertrophy out of that. But if I'm not getting the actual movement requirements that they're going to need for forward propulsion and running, then I'm not doing them, you know, much justice when it comes to their actual sport if it requires that. If I've got – you know, a power lifter where, again, everything's going to be bilateral and everything's going to be a little more sagittalized, me giving them a ton of IR might actually give them too many degrees of freedom, right? Because they actually force everything out to create essentially a bony constraint between the femur, the acetabulum, and the the actual like anonement of the pelvis. And they go to end range and work through that pattern as a constraint. You know, they create their own And that allows for a ton of interjoint stability with a really heavy load on their back. And that's a safer position for a lot of them within a squat than letting them go through like a full propulsion cycle that we would maybe with an athlete-based squat where we're a little narrower stanced. We, you know, we start out in full extension with a little bit of external rotation as we go through mid propulsion you know, and, and more flexion, we get more internal rotation, adduction of the femurs potentially, and then when we get into late propulsion, and or it's actually early propulsion, but that full flexion of the hips and the knees and that, you know, kind of ask the grass model, we're kind of back in more of an external rotation and abducted femur, and then we're cycling back through on the way up again. And that's essentially just creating external rotation to create external internal rotation to create more external rotation, and that's just re- rotation begetting rotation for torque production during extension.
1: Yeah, with that being said, uh, I have two questions for you. First, as you mentioned, early, mid, and late propulsion. So, do those fit in a squat? Like, is that all based on the descent? Or can you tell me the points in a squat? Yeah. Let's just say asked to grasp for for, you know, just so everyone's on the same page because for whatever the you know whatever people's internet police squat depth I, I don't I don't care about that but just let's just say it's I like half squats and leave it there but um this ass to grass squat what uh where
0: are those things happening so if we're talking about like a full full squat you're actually in late propulsion starting so if we start from the base of the squat you're going to be in early propulsion through mid through late kind of like you would in like oh, a gait like cycle right So when you're in that deep squat, you're in early, you have more of a posteriorly tilted pelvis, right? You've got more external rotation and adduction of the femurs. And then as you go through up into more extension, you're going to have a little bit more of an anteriorly tilted pelvis, you're going to get a little more internal rotation of the femurs. And then you're gonna pop back into full extension where you're posterior pelvic tilted and you're again externally rotated from that perspective too. So those two those things kind of happen in, in synchronicity through that full extension of the squat. And you know this is something that I know you've talked you know with David and we talked about him a little bit before the before the we started recording too. But one of the biggest things that I try to work on with people is understanding that you know. External rotation and internal rotation aren't necessarily a destination with a dynamic movement. It's a means to get to certain points. And if you can't externally rotate, you can't internally rotate. And if you can't internally rotate, you can't externally rotate. These two things have to happen uh, reciprocally of one another and lead to one another throughout the motion of that squat. So, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't
1: coach a squat saying... I want you to like internally actually rotate it, it. Would that be in the map at all? Or is it that just a byproduct? you set them up the way you want? There's a certain goal in mind. And then like, how does that, how does that work then within the way that you're coaching those movements?
0: Yeah. From a coaching perspective, you know, we're always just going to watch them squat first, right. And, and see if they are faulting into or, or missing one of those components, you know, within a full squat. And, and we see this a lot with like, you know, the quote unquote, hingey squat where people never actually get into that early propulsion cycle and their hips go back rather than Mm. down. So there's a horizontal translation of the pelvis rather than a vertical translation. So they can force external rotation all the way through. And because they have a hard time internally rotating a femur, they're not getting through mid propulsion down into early propulsion. And again, because of that, you get kind of things going up and down the chain, right? Like you end up with a more vertical shin, less dorsiflexion of the ankle, more supination at the foot. And then from an upper body perspective, you end up with uh, a more of a pitch forward, right? Just and a lot of that's just physics and dealing with bar placement. If a bar's on your back and you're putting hips back, your chest has to go forward because it's going to remain over the midfoot. And if you look at morphology, you know, Longer femurs are going to be hips going farther back, shorter femurs. It's not going to be as drastic. So height plays a little bit of a role in this as well. But for the most part, when we look at that hingy squat, like that's somebody who's not able to access IR very well. So instead of getting their, their femurs in, they just shove their pelvis farther back in space and recruit different musculature to finish the task or accomplish the task.
1: So really when we say. The, the typical, and I hope this becomes atypical for athletes. It's when we do the comment, okay, just sit back, you know, chest up, sit back, knees out. That essentially, I mean, it's, so it's just, it's driving even more ER and and less IR. So that's, mm-hmm. I guess, one one big thing, right? But, and obviously that being probably pretty negative for anyone who wants to be elastic in their sport and access internal rotation and inside edge of the foot. But what what's happening again with the st- the phases, like the early, mid and late, phase of of gait you're missing you said you're missing one
0: yeah so they're not getting basically what would be mid stance gait right they're not getting the the pronation at the foot they're not getting internal rotation of a femur in a tibia and they're not getting any kind of adduction that you would have and again the adduction isn't drastic it's just literally having and gait it's a pelvis that's shifting over a tibia right so you're so you're not lopsided and when people can't do this, you see like exaggerated swing phases, right? You'll see people who can't get into their left side. So they have a big swing phase on their left side and they kind of stand their right hip over that right foot the entire time. And their stance phase uh, on the left side is very short. It's almost like they're trying to get back to the right foot as quickly as they possibly can. If you think about runners or just people walking up and down the street. And when you look at that from a squat perspective, if somebody's in has trouble getting into early propulsion to that full depth and they go back and set it down, they're basically just circumventing the need to internally rotate by repositioning their pelvis. So instead of moving their femurs, they're just moving their pelvis back and kind of, again, um, decreasing their need for any type of like posterior pelvic tilt during that range of motion. So they're never getting into early. They're basically just going from late to mid to late, but they're not internally rotating at mid they're not going through that full cycle.
1: Yeah. It totally makes sense why I've heard sprint coaches say that that type of squatting can decrease stride length (laughs) because you're, you're not pronating. Like you're not, you're not internally rotating. How are you going to like have a long stride? And then, I just think it's funny, like you mentioned, like the swing phase, like, you know, the t- what happens to a lot of people, like college sprinters, like, let's go do deep squats and hips back and then teach, you know, tell people to lift their knees up. And you have this weird, <laughs> this weird running stride that doesn't really repl- replicate a lot of our elastic natures. You know, it's, I think some, at- a lot of athletes intuitively work around that, you know, they squat in a way that probably reciprocates how they operate and those types of things. But yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah.
0: It's it's funny. I mean, that's, we were talking about, you know, athletes self-organizing and, you know, your experience in, you know, gyms, you know, as opposed to mine being coached into more of that, like powerlifting style squat early on in my athletic career is, you know, when you watch a lot of athletes squat and just uncoached, you get a lot of forefoot, you get knees going forward, you get a little bit more vertical torso. And are they as strong as a power lifter? no. But that's not the goal for them right Like that's not what they're actually trying to do they're trying to produce power and and power and max load isn't always the same thing you know if i'm a if i'm a power lifter doing a one rm or if i'm in a meet and i've got you know a four second concentric uh on my on my squat like there's no velocity there i'm just grinding out there's no there's no elasticity going on you know so if you're looking at like an athlete, you're not going to be max loading. You're going to be focusing more on velocity and power production there. And that squat's going to probably look very different from a biomechanical perspective as well, especially if you're trying to match gait. If you're trying to get more of a shin angle, if you're trying to get knees over toes a little more, you will sacrifice overall strength for more power and velocity perspective.
1: Yeah. You, you were talking to our or referring to our little talk before this. And I was yeah. mentioning, yeah, my, when I was in high school, I just squatted. No one was telling me what to do. I just put a bar on my back and started dropping. And I remember, I don't know why I remember this stuff. Like this is just stuff that sits around floating in my head for whatever reason. I, it was just a heavier squat day. And, and I think we did like the Husker power program, but I, I of course modified it because I didn't want to squat heavy twice a week and deadlift heavy twice a week. I was just like, this is too much, you know, at 18, I'm sitting here like, you know, I I didn't tell my coach I wasn't gonna do it. I just I mean our star point guard would literally he hated squatting and our, and he was like five nine and could dunk and he would like have just just uh, one thirty five on his back and be looking over at the coach to see that he wasn't looking and then just do like ten quarter squats and put the bar back. But I I remember I was like a heavier day. It was in the bar. It was only like two fifty five for five reps. I weighed like one seventy 170, one seventy five. I was never a great squatter, but I remember my knees coming in like a ton like probably almost touching each other to hit like those last few reps under extreme like for my body considered extreme load for a lot of people it'd be a toothpick but the funny thing is is that that whole fall because i had never really deep squatted a lot until that fall my i had uh knee issues uh i know jake tura has, has gone into a lot of like this type of idea but like i uh and i guarantee my knees were going over my toes too for that stuff like i didn't i just dropped down and did whatever my body did but my knee issues pretty much completely cleared up over the course of two to three months. And that was squatting with the knees, like going yep. in. And, and I, there was no, you know, I felt like I was, I was super elastic. I high jumped really well that year. I was really fast, long jumped well. And then college I No one again, no one was really coaching me. Just what felt good. I think I had heard more things of what you're supposed to, but what just Mm -hmm. felt good was just loading up the forefoot still. And it wasn't until I got to my mid twenties. That's like knees out through the heels. And then my stride, like my high jump approach went from 70 feet to 66. I'm like, why is this happening? (laughs) So anyway, sorry, it was a lot. I just,
0: I like that story. So I felt like I should tell it as a prelude. Well, and that's actually, I mean, that's something that we talk a lot about people with, you know, as far as like, you know, the, the quote unquote, you know, the valgus monster, you know, the, the V word that everybody in the industry is absolutely terrified with. And, you know, the, the biggest thing that I see with, you know, the knees going in on a squat like that and, and, you know, when it's good and when it's, you know, quote unquote bad really has more to do with, your ability to rotate, right? So if you're adducting a femur and internally rotating it and pronating at the foot, it's probably a perfectly safe position. But if you're adducting a femur, but you're not internally rotating it and you're not pronating at the foot and you're just collapsing your arch, that's a different story, right? Now we have adduction without rotation. and That might be putting more stress on a knee, right? That might be something that's more of a, of a risky movement, And when you look at like really good jumpers, like, I mean, we, I was watching, um, I forgot the athlete's name, but he had, he literally did a 48 inch, you know, standing jump. Right. And he went into internal rotation adduction on both, you know, the concentric and the deceleration on landing, you know, nobody's correcting that guy, you know, and, but he's combining the adduction flexion and internal rotation as a means to get, external rotation, adduction and extension to produce power. And when we combine rotation with extension, we produce torque. And, you know, what, what a lot of the coaches now are trying to do with like that, you know, or not now so much, but, you know, five, 10 years ago with that kind of butt back vertical shin, no rotation is they're, they're essentially turning rotational joints at the ball and socket into knees, right. Or into elbows, right. And just extensors and flexors. And that completely just decreases the overall function of what a ball and socket joint is able to do. And it's always, it's always baffled me that, you know, we can throw a baseball and combine internal rotation and external rotation, all of these things, and nobody says anything. But for some reason, a femur is never allowed to internally rotate. And if it does, you need to correct it right away, even if the person has no pain or no performance drop off.
1: Yeah, we don't coach bench presses. That's it. I've never, for some reason, I never thought about that, like ball and socket, hinge joint, like rotation. But it's like, it's not like we coach bench presses. I mean, we don't want people like with the T, you know, a T shape, which is funny because that is 90 degrees, like I guess, but we don't like have everyone like jamming their elbows into their ribs and saying, don't deviate from this position or something. You know what I'm saying? It's, I think because it maybe, maybe it's because the shoulders will blow up easier too, like injury wise, or I I don't know. You know, it's, um, I mean, it's such a, it's an interesting thing, man. I, I, I was going to say too, I a question I had was, okay, so you, you said that the IR so that they can have more ER range. So it's almost like, because I always thought of the IR as like loading the spring, you know, like, and maybe mm-hmm. it is that too, you know, yeah. but, but like, it's also like someone who doesn't have a lot of internal, external rotation range in the field, just period. I, mm-hmm. I just, for whatever reason, injury They've been taught a certain way. They're they're just not very mobile. Like they're they're just going to have a reduced power potential, probably no matter what, out of the glutes. They you just don't have range there. So, yeah. so that's kind of what you were saying before. Like you have to have that intellectual range to be to prime the spring.
0: Yeah, I mean the really the only fundamental trait that you have to have that's necessary for external rotation is internal rotation. Like you have to come from somewhere. Because being in an externally rotated position doesn't mean you're actually facilitating the movement of external rotation, right? And I think that's where a lot of people kind of get confused with those terms is, you know, they'll say, oh, like I'm in a fully abducted and I'm externally rotating. It's like, no, you're just externally rotated, Mm -hmm. right? Like you're in the state, but you're not actually ER ERing through that range of motion at all because you can't IR enough to come from somewhere, and when you're in that, that's where I, I think, you know, from the load and explode perspective, like, I think that's dead on, right? Like you have to be able to flex to extend, you have to be able to adduct to abduct, and you have to be able to internally rotate to externally rotate. And when you look at the combination of, you know, flexion, adduction, internal rotation, that's typically like a deceleration or a loading phase, of any type of movement and when you look at like the concentric or propulsion part of the of the movement you look at external rotation extension and adduction typically from the femur
1: that reminds me a little bit like you were saying like you have to like people who try to force it, it's like look i'm externally rotated. it's like i'm making like pictures with my hands even though no one can see this but like my <laughs> thumbs are out to the side like and I, like a, yep. this is how i think i guess and so if my, my femurs are out, I'm externally rotated, but because there was no internal rotation to precede it, there's no polarity and therefore energy cannot flow between the polarities. So, but I was thinking something funny that I, I see, I'm sure I don't feel bad saying this cause I'm sure you agree with me. Like I'm not throwing something out there. I'm going to get burned on. But like you see like the athletes who finish a squat with a tuck, like they squeeze their ass at the top like <laughs> that, like as if they're going to, you know, it's like the same thing, right? Like it, you didn't set it up or i i, I think because the low bar back squat made me think about that but it's almost like it's a thing now because maybe we're in the more of the hip thruster era of of mm. sorts and and that you know that although the hip thrust you do have a load and explode but it's like at the top of a squat you're just squeezing your ass without us i don't know i just think that's funny like what do you think because you i'm sure you see people do that i'm just i think it's interesting
0: yeah it's like that that last like you know five percent of the extension right arm of of the hip extension on the squat and it's just very exaggerated you I, i you do see it a lot and yeah i mean it's almost just doing it to do it right because at that point depending on what your load is right if you're back loaded if you're front loaded the load is still going to be fairly vertically positioned over your toes at full extension so you're not actually moving it very much right from that perspective just based on the extension arms and, and the levers at work. So that's more so like that's almost just over coaching for me. Like when I see that it's like somebody has told that person to like fully lock out their hips at a squat or at, you know, or at a deadlift potentially, you see it in powerlifting a lot because you have to get full lockout for the lift to count. And that might've been where it originated with athletes as well mm-hmm. is because if they don't fully lock out their hips like that, it's a non, it's non lift, right? Like they're not going to get white lights at that point. So But it's usually just very exaggerated. It almost just seems like, okay, the lift's over, and then it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot to squeeze my ass. And they just, like, (laughs) squeeze everything forward really quick. Like, it's not even part of the actual lift itself.
1: Yeah, it's like you said, like, there's so little range of motion available to, like, just like ERI, or you have a certain amount of range. It's like anterior, Mm -hmm. posterior, a certain amount of range. It's like, by the time you're at the top, it'd be like doing an arm curl, again, me visual, but, like, where my hand is already almost touching my shoulder and doing, like, a like a A little pump there. yeah a little yeah just just a little pump just a one inch pump at the end it's not because like that big chance to really i had this like almost realization as i was was doing i do hill workouts on wednesday wednesdays and i had this um almost epiphany i almost all my good thoughts happen in the middle of a workout and Mm -hmm. it was like it was like the whole purpose of this everything my body is doing in the air is to set up the glute to hit as hard as possible at the exact right spot. I was like, "That is, and have a good foot hip connection." Like, if yeah. I like everything I'm doing, my body's doing the twisting, manipulating. It's just like I'm a I'm a basketball player, and I'm setting i I'm giving you know trying to sit, get a, the perfect assist to the glute every time, and that's that doesn't happen at the top. It happens at this like peak point of flexion and rotation. But it's like that kind of hit I saw was interesting. Uh, yeah, idea the other day, things that go in my mind.
0: I yeah, I mean I it could be a whole nother podcast to just talk about how, you know, movement stimulates the brain. I think, I feel like I do all of my best thinking typically like on my morning walks or when I'm running or even when I'm lifting, that's usually when I write like Instagram posts and my notes when I'm, you know, resting between sets. But, but yeah, like that whole early phase of gait, right. Early stance phase is really just, you know, supination into external rotation into hip extension. And then, you're, you know, you're, you're at that full kind of glute contractile. And then as you go through mid phase, you're allowing for an eccentric or stretch reflex of the glute and internal rotation of the femur. And then as you go back in the late phase, you're using that stress reflex to get more external rotation and extension again, you know, and that's, that's the muscular component of kind of what's happening with the bones is it's not always, um, you know, you have reciprocal like muscles working, but you also have stretch reflexes and eccentric and concentric orientations of muscles that are taking place through that that process. And it's not like when you go through mid stance, your glute stops working and like the hip flexor Mm -hmm. and quad takes over. It's like, no, it's actually eccentrically lengthening and creating a stretch so that it can contract again through late stance phase and push you off forward into like the next step. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance
1: Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, so that does bring me to something that I, I've probably been wanting to ask you this like this whole talk. And that's uh, with the whole like ever since Pat Davidson wrote that knees in for the win. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the prime th- place you see that is Olympic lifters versus, as you mentioned, like the power lifter and they're creating a different paradigm. So what, and we would all probably classify at least in terms of being explosive for the most part although you, know, you get fred hatfield you know with his 48 inch jump off the thing you know it's there's always but generally i think we'd say olympic lifters are more explosive for the most part and what and you see their knees are often doing that little click in mm-hmm. off the bottom versus i don't know what, so anyways what what's going on there in terms of uh your thoughts on the differences between an olympic lifter squat and a powerlifter squat in that translation
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest thing that you have to consider is load placement, right? Like you've got a back loaded athlete versus a front loaded athlete. And when you're an Olympic lifter and you're front loaded and you're handling that weight in that, um, that clean or that rack position that allows for a full squat and vertical translation of the actual pelvis, because that load is now shifting your rib cage back over your heels rather than forward over your feet. Right. So the the load becomes your new center of mass and your rib cage wraps around that rather than being shoved and forward. So now you've got this essentially counterweight, right? Where you've got a heavy load sitting on your clavicle or wherever you're holding it and you're able to get into full depth uh, squat, and when you're able to get a pelvis down vertically, you're able to get knees forward, right? Because your your femurs don't magically change length; they have to go somewhere. So if the femurs aren't going back or the hips aren't going back, the knees have to go forward. You have to be able to facilitate more dorsiflexion at the ankle, and that allows those athletes to then utilize the full propulsion arc from early to mid to late propulsion. So they go through that almost wave or cycle of rotation to create better extension. So when they're in that deep early propulsion, you'll see knees out, but as soon as they try to get up into extension, the knees usually yeah. dive in, right? And that's doing a couple things from a muscular standpoint as well. Like it's creating that stretch reflex of the glutes, right? So you're stretching the glute through adduction and IR there so that you can externally rotate through extension. And you're also leveraging like the VMO and the medial quads and the adductor magnus for better extension mechanics. Threw up by repositioning a femur, and and I think that's the the other part of like a big squat that nobody talks about is you know we talk about the glutes we talk about the quads and a little bit about the hamstrings but the adductor magnus is also a huge muscle when you look at a lot of athletes and that's and it's a prime it's it's not your primary hip extender as far as like the glute complex but it does a lot of hip extension and manipulation of the femur through that as well especially when you're on one leg when you're in a deep squat it's also part of what's drawing the knees or the femurs in through mid propulsion and then allowing them to then go back out through late propulsion and full extension so it's also working when you have a power lifter you've got a back load so the rib cage is going farther over the toes like if you see a power lifter right before they squat right they're standing there fully racked and like you see them almost leaning forward with their chest really out Their scapulas are squeezed back together as far as they can, so they can get their arms around a bar. So their lats are super, you know, concentrically oriented and short. And typically, they're already at a little bit of hip flexion or a little bit of lordotic curve of their lumbar spine. And because of the loading scheme, if they were to do sit down vertical, outside of like a few, you know, morphological outliers, they would literally fall backwards on their butts. Like they wouldn't be able to, right? So they have to shoot their hips back in order to keep the actual barbell or the new center of mass, the load over their mid foot. And because their hips are going back, their knees aren't going forward. So they're keeping a more vertical shin. They're not dorsiflexing at the ankle very much at all. They're not really going into pronation of the foot because of that. So they're staying supinated typically or rolled out mm-hmm. and they don't need to access uh internal rotation of the femurs or adduction because they found a way around it they can just force out and basically turn their their hips and knees into solely extensors and flexors at that point would you say that
1: the vertical shin, like i think about the linchpins like what's that linchpin at the Mm -hmm. top that screwed everything else up would you say it's that the the vertical shin in squatting that probably is the worst thing that cascades the screw up for athletic movement or would you say what would you say is the biggest Uh, issue
0: it's super interesting because when I look at reference points for athletes, I look at the axial skeleton, right? You know, because you have a center of mass resp- that responds to gravity, right? So your rib cage is either falling forward or falling backwards, typically, whenever you're moving. It's, it's never truly stacked uh, as much as we want it to be, potentially. And then you have ground contact with the foot, you know, and and then you have the relation of the rib cage to the foot. So if the rib cage is forward of the foot, you're you're going to uh, if if you're depending on how much your knee is flexed, you're either going to be able to dorsiflex or you're not. So I almost look at the rib cage contributing more to like hmm. what the foot and the ankle are doing than almost anything else. Uh, and you can see, you know, when I'm in in mid stand, when I'm running, if I'm doing, you know, gait related activities, my feet are almost always in front of my rib cage, right? The only exception to that is toe push off. And that's when I'm actually plantar flexed. Mm-hmm. I'm not dorsiflexed, right? I'm in full extension and supination. So if my rib cage is over my foot standing, I'm not going to be able to dorsiflex and get a vertical shin because I'm going to fall forward. I have to be able to throw that other leg out in front of me. And if I'm walking, that's okay because walking requires less, less dorsiflexion than running typically. But if I'm squatting and I'm bilateral, I have to shift everything backwards. And my rib cage is actually going to dictate what my shin and ankle are typically going to do because of my relation with space and gravity and how that center of mass is now reacting to gravity. And that's why even a front loaded squat is going to look and appear differently than a back loaded squat. If I try like vice versa, if I try to do a hingy front loaded squat, I'm just going to dump the load. I can't hold it. Or I'm going to like, if I'm in a safety bar squat scenario, I'm going to pitch all the way forward and I'm going to turn it into a good morning. Right? So, those relationships, the rib cage, the foot, the center of mass, the foot, like those things are definitely going to matter in both, but it's going to be a little bit different from a gait perspective to a squat perspective. Makes, simply because I've got one leg going forward. So
1: I kind of jumped in there cause I was, I was getting really excited about something from a, a you know, gate and jumping and running perspective. As I think about, I, I mean, the only time, I mean, you always want the peak, whether it's acceleration or top end that like the peak load of, the the moment should happen when the feet are under the hips although they're going to strike in front so you don't fall on your face it's under, especially mm-hmm. at top end speed you have to the foot has to come down in front a little bit but i was just thinking about um you know just generally running and generally especially jumping because the feet have to come down even further in front of you to create the lever to go upwards and so if i'm always squatting because i've never thought about this with the relation of ribs and feet and squatting or anything in the weight room and it's like if i am always doing stuff if I was always squatting where my rib cage goes in front of my foot and then I'm trying to jump where my rib cage is like way behind mm-hmm. my plant foot, that could be a major screw up because I I just I just think of all the ways cuz there's always more than one thing, you know, it's mm-hmm. not it's just joint specificity for sure, but also the I mean that is joint specificity, it's where is the rib yeah, you know, ribs and everything. So I find that really interesting.
0: And And I think that's where like the coordination uh, of movement comes in, you know, and I was actually thinking about this, you know, today while I was running, but you know, when you look at like a a hinging back squat where you've got a, a pelvis position behind a foot, like that's going to be a super eccentric orientation of like the hamstring and the glute. Whereas when you're in early phase gait, like early stance phase, and you're making that heel contact and you've got a pelvis way behind a foot, you're actually in more of a concentric orientation of the glute and you're pulling through co- concentrically through your hamstring to get your pelvis back over the foot and forward of the foot. So we've got a similar biomechanical position, but we've got different orientations of the actual mm glute and hamstring, we're using them different ways because we're trying to establish vertical propulsion instead of forward propulsion. And we're using muscles differently from that standpoint because we're coming from a different place. When you're running or jumping, we talked about this a little bit. Like if I'm a basketball player and I'm sprinting down the the court on the fast break, I'm not going to gather myself, sit back and then try to dunk, right? Like I'm not like that. That's not going to make sense in any way. You know, and if I'm running, it's, it's kind of the same way. Like I'm never moving backwards. Everything's always coming from backwards to forwards. But when I squat, especially hinging, I'm pushing my hips backwards to push them forward again. And and when you look at how the coordination of that works from a a gait or running perspective, there's not really a good match like happening. there, just in muscular function, eccentrically and, and concentrically
1: so you're saying i was thinking about you were saying that like the eccentric and concentric orientation of things because i think some people might would they would have a squat and they draw a line with the angles and say look this is the same but what you're saying is a squat which is vertically loaded and a running which is a horizontal outcome that the it's actually a opposite orientation of the way like the glutes are loaded at that particular Mm -hmm. point in time in a squat it would be eccentric and in a the running at that point in time it would be a concentric load so it's opposite
0: instead of sitting my hips back i'm pulling my hips forward it's going to be two two different muscle actions from a coordination perspective
1: wow that's interesting lots of stuff i haven't thought of i love this so this is going to make my my next uh question a very interesting one so how okay in light of athletics so uh, maybe i mean let's just say it's like a football or basketball player someone who's got to do a lot of things move different ways i'm sure Mm -hmm. there's there's different like you said are they a bilateral unilateral are they actually rotated you know all these presentations but what are some um, just what are some general principles with, with squat selection and working with an athlete whose goal is not squat weight. It's to be better at their sport.
0: Yeah. Um, I'm typically always probably going to front load those athletes so I can be a little bit more vertical. And again, I, when I say, you know, vertical, it's a continuum, like I don't need them to be perfectly vertical, but I also don't want their, their chest to be touching their thighs right at the, at the, at the bottom of a squat. So they're going to be more like that 45 to 60 degree angle or whatever that looks like. And, and that allows me to now again, get the knees forward because I want a more vertical torso angle. So I can get a more uh, so I can get more forward translation of the actual knees and more dorsiflexion and more Mm -hmm. and a more uh, angled shin. That's the main reason why I want vertical pelvis uh, you know, for, for an athlete, because that's going to, be closer to what running looks like. And I'm not going to replicate running with the squat. I know that, you know, we can talk about anonymous moving reciprocally versus together. Like there's a whole, there's a whole range of things there, but if I can at least get a more, a more similar joint action happening at the pelvis the knee and the foot, in my mind, that makes for better coordination for what they're actually going to be doing when they're running and jumping. Cause it's the same thing, jumping. When you watch athletes jump dynamically their knees go forward, their hips don't go back typically, right? When, when they're in actual sport, especially elastic athletes, uh, you typically see knees going forward, they're on the balls, of their feet, and they're driving that extension rather than their hips actually driving forward because, or their hips driving backwards. Cause that's an eccentric action that's typically deceleration or, or slowing down, right? Stopping a sprint or stopping a jump rather than actually like concentrically orientating for those things you know so that's that's what i'm going to look at like unilaterally i'm going to be looking at a lot of the same things i you know i might do things depending on where where they have trouble like floating the heel or elevating the heel or potentially even if they have a hard time in like early stance elevating a forefoot uh you know for some people during like a hinge movement just to again get be able to control a longer hamstring if they have a hard time controlling like a stretched hamstring or an eccentrically orientated hamstring moving into concentric orientation from early to mid phase. Uh, So there's a lot of considerations there. But uh, if I'm training uh, a dynamic athlete, I'm probably not going to backload them especially unless their goal is to just get as strong as possible like that would be the only real reason and that's typically not those that those you know we know that the strongest athlete isn't always the the best performer uh you know the we we've all seen the weight room heroes on on various teams and they're typically not the best players on the team either
1: what well, something you were talking about way back at the beginning that i want actually i'm glad i saved the comment because I, I was i was gonna get back to this one as you mentioned and in squatting bilaterally, your your pelvis stays in the middle. It can't I mean you could I guess, you know, in a asymmetrical weird squat, you could put it over one or the other if you yeah. like loaded all the weight on one side or I don't know. But anyway, so you're talking about in, in unilateral stuff uh, exercises. I think that the common thing that we do is we treat it just like a squat. It's like, oh, rear foot elevated split squat and now and everything is still if you watch the pelvic or the you know, the pubic bone line, it would still be mm-hmm. kinda of right down, up down the middle. So when you do unilateral movement to help reciprocate gait a little better, are you, you're trying to get them like zipper over the toe? Are you trying to get them to push to that side?
0: Yeah. So I'm going to get them in more of a, an inline stance or something closer to inline where, you know, my, my goal for most athletes on like a a split squat variation, whether it's a front foot elevated or rear foot elevated or walking lunge, whatever it may be is if I can get, you know, the sacrum lined up with the instep, like, I feel like that's, that's going to be a pretty good position for most people. Like if I can get that kind of big toe or the sacrum itself, or the instep lined up with the sacrum and then have the, you know, the actual like sternum over the sacrum as well. If I can get those things lined up, that that's going to allow the actual, you know, femur to internally rotate during uh, flexion and get forward over the toe. And I'm probably going to be looking at a knee that's also kind of positioned over the big toe During the flexion phase of that, and then when they extend, they're extending out of it, and that's where the pelvis is going to shift more over because you're accommodating swing phase on the other side to get the other leg out there.
1: Cool. That so that so for people, that makes a lot of sense because I just think yeah we get so stuck in the everything just straight up and down and and it's and so even for like walking lunges you would do that too. So walk so Mm -hmm. you're walking you're just going to put that sacrum over the instep sacrum over the instep that's awesome so that leads me to probably probably my last question for this show but that but because i'm sure it's very similar but restoring internal rotation so someone who just doesn't have a lot of internal rotation range like we were talking about the squatting and i was talking about oh yeah when i was in high school i put my knees in and it was great and it helped my knees but like you said some people just can't if they do the same thing i did or they tried to manufacture it they're gonna probably pop their knee it's not gonna be good so what um what what are some things that you do if someone presents and they just don't have a lot of internal rotation? What are some reasons for that? Like like movement wise, etc. Pronation, and then what are some some key things that you're going to
0: utilize to restore it? Yeah, I mean there there can be a lot of reasons, and then probably a lot of combinations of reasons just relating to strength coordination, uh, just the past training experience. Like there can be a lot of things that are happening there potentially. Um, but from like restoring it, I'm probably just going to look at positional constraints. Like one of the things that I typically will do with people to find, you know, quote unquote, to kind of find adductors and, and find medial hamstrings and kind of get that relationship going for the, for the actual femur on the pelvis is just putting them in that inline lunge position, right? If, if you're put in that position, your adductor will fire right away, or you will fall over. You know, so I, I don't even really coach it. I, I just put them in an inline lunge and I, you, I actually use like the, you know, you mentioned Jake earlier, like the isometric split squats. That's how I line people up and they'll typically find that adductor, uh, you know, five to 10 seconds into holding that actual lunge. And it, you know, if I put somebody in the right position, the right muscles will typically integrate themselves and I don't have to cue. Okay. Try to move your knee over or try to rotate a femur, adduct a femur if you're in line you have to be in those positions so i just put them in that position and tell them not to fall over and the right muscles generally just kick in you know for that position to stabilize the body in space and i don't have to do much cueing i can just ask them what they were feeling afterwards
1: cool yeah i I like that isometrics i suppose are a really good place to start for people who just You know, if I don't have a lot of IR and I'm trying to, you know, squat or do anything with a big range, it's probably, your body's probably going to throw a lot of neural roadblocks in pretty quick. Like that makes sense with the
0: isometric. Yeah. We'll, we'll do the the yielding first, then we'll go into overcoming, then we'll get into like statodynamics and then. Once they kind of get through those three cycles, they're ready to just go, you know, train loaded at that point. Yeah.
1: So, so I can say the secret exercise when I market this. Thought, no, just, saying, just kidding. Uh, but this, if there was a secret exercise, it would be an isometric, uh, like split squat lungy variation where you are putting just the sacrum over the instep and trying to have them draw connections from there.
0: It's a really easy way to find that, that movement quality or that, that femur quality.
1: I love it. I will totally keep that in mind. That's awesome. I'm I'm glad. To, uh, I'm glad I asked you that question here. Cause I, I'll keep that with me for sure. Cause I run into a lot of athletes who have those, yeah. those things going on. And it's easy for me. I think we always tend to, at least I do, you know, I weigh how I felt in the workout doing it with how, of course the athlete's going to be this way, but mm-hmm. I can, I mean, I could do a squat and touch my knees together in front and no problem. <laughs> so yeah. not everyone's like me. Which is fun. My son is too. And he gets up like, like he's sitting on the ground and he's like fully internally rotated and his like feet are outside. And he
0: gets up like that. Like, I'm like, you're crazy. (laughs) My, my kids, like I'll, we'll be at the playground and they'll, they'll jump off like a five foot, you know, playground equipment apparatus, whatever. And they'll land in a full squat with their knees touching and then pop out of it into a full run, you know? And I'm just, and and again, kids are more elastic. Like I know that, but it also just, just goes to show you like, we move this way. Like we wouldn't have ball and socket joints if we weren't supposed to facilitate rotation, like let the, let the structure of the actual joints tell you what they're supposed to do. And I think when we try to change that or we try to force things, you know, like force the knees out and only out, it's just, it turns into kind of that like square peg round hole type thing where, yeah, you can potentially do that, but you're, you're limiting your actual potential quite a bit from an athletic perspective, probably.
1: Yeah. hundred percent, man. I love it. Uh, well, that's awesome, Kyle. Thank you so much. man. I think I, shoot, I probably only got through half the questions, but in my mind, I'm like, well, we'll save them for, I'm sure I can do a second show somewhere <laughs> down the line. So I'll save, I'll, I'll save a bunch of them. But thank you so much, man. I learned a ton and really appreciate your time.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun.
1: Well, if you didn't know the difference between uh, back squats, front squats, Olympic squats, powerlifting squats, and pretty much everything in between, I think we can all say that we we either do now or we know a whole lot more. And so really thankful for that episode information. I think it's going to help a lot of athletes and coaches and pretty much everyone involved in athletics who lifts. It's just really great stuff. So thanks again, Kyle, for being on the show. If you enjoyed it, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. That would really help us out in spreading the word of this show wanted to give one last shout out as well to our sponsor SimplyFaster.com. they've been a longtime sponsor of this show they're doing awesome things with their blog their online store and they just offer the best of in so many uh, elements and areas of sport tech from the free lap timing system to gym wear box, contact grids force plates 1080 quantum i mean they really have such a huge range of loads of items that will help you and your athletes have a better experience so be sure to check them out and we'll see you guys next week have a good one